This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel, helping you plan the very best Disney vacations. Email them at communicorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and tell them we sent you. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And listen, guys, we have like a super long show for you tonight. So we're yeah. going to cut the banter in the beginning of the show down to like the bare minimum. Because... And this isn't because of complaints. No, no. I mean, if, even if there was complaints, chances are we'd probably stretch out a little bit more. Just, just in case. Yeah, because maybe you guys just don't get the banter if, like, you're complaining about it. We just want to make sure you understand yeah. the banter. banter but banter, still, banter. It, it is a long history. It is a long and history. And a long book review. And book and, review and 60-second anyway. review and everything else is long in the show. So we should just get going. Our voices. We're going to talk really <laughs> slow tonight. So when you listen at two times the speed, will be normal. <laughs> That was really hard to do. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm impressed too. Remember when I said this was going to be like no banter? I lied yep. clearly. And if we're already about a minute and a half. We should right. probably start the actual show now. It's time for Disney History. When you hear the words Coney Island, you mostly think about amusement parks, right, George? Mm, no, I think about Skyline Chili and hot dogs. You seriously? You talk about food again? Did you like just eat dinner before we start recording? Uh, maybe, but uh, maybe you know Skyline could sponsor the show one week. We will you know? have to email their PR people. Yeah, I could do that. Yes, please, yeah. please do, and then you can get free Skyline Chili. Yeah, like that. So, although Feltman's restaurant on Coney Island was the birthplace of the hot dog, it's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, George. And right. Coney Island isn't just the name of an amusement park, although it was one of the more popular names for the trolley parks and amusement parks across America during the first part of the 20th century. Um, a lot of the local parks used the term Coney Island in hopes of garnering some of the, the same attentions. And geographically, Coney Island is one of the barrier islands in Long Island. So what is in a name? Parts of New York State and New York City were Dutch colonies, and there was a lot of naming conventions that have Dutch antecedents in the area. The Barrier Islands were also populated with colonies of rabbits. Lots of rabbits, apparently. And uh, one thought is that the name comes from the Dutch term <clears throat> Konanye Island, or Island. But George, 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 I'm gonna let you finish. Okay. Kanye West has the best sounding <laughs> name like that of all time. Okay, we'll go Koninye okay. Island. I have no idea. Which basically translates as Rabbit Island. So uh, other sources point towards the Irish Gaelic word for rabbit, which is Koinin? Um, yeah. yeah. While another argument is based on the fact that there was a family that lived in the area with the last name of Koinin. Um, so Coney Island has always had a long history of being a place where Manhattanites vacationed. And prior to the 1830s, it would take more than a half day to travel to Coney Island. Like, a little bit more than Disney Hollywood Studios. 
Oh, okay, I wouldn't expect that one. Uh, so, <laughs> so, in the 1830s, carriage roads and steamships cut the travel time down to about two hours, and the Coney Island Hotel opened in 1829, followed by the Brighton Beach Hotel and the Orient Hotels. And after the Civil War, Coney Island surged in popularity due to the changes in transportation. The Coney Island and Brooklyn Railroad streetcar opened in 1860, and the Iron Steamboat started in 1881. Charles I. D. Loof, who was a Danish woodcarver, uh, built the first carousel at a bathhouse complex on Surf Avenue. And it was a covered, steam-powered carousel with carved horses and, you know, a couple of other animals. And a drummer and a flute played uh, the, the music, you know, live music accompaniment. And there was also an arm that provided people with iron rings so they could actually grab onto it. Yeah. Instead of the brass ring, they got the iron ring. Yes. In or 18- the one ring. <laughs> in 1884, Lamarcus Thompson built the Switchback Railway in Coney Island. Thompson is considered the father of gravity rides, which was another name for early roller coasters. But the first roller coasters were the Russian ice slides of the 1600s. And yes, we will be covering those on a later show. But back to Coney Island. The Switchback Railway cost five cents a ride and traveled a mind-blowing Six miles per hour. Oh, man. When this baby hits six miles per hour, (laughs) you are going to see some serious stuff. Yes. Um, So jumping ahead, speaking of time travel, to 1894, we get the first ever fenced-in amusement park in the United States, uh, Sea Lion Park. And it was started by Paul Boynton, not Bunyan, uh, Paul (laughs) Boynton, and was the first amusement park to uh, to charge a single admission. And two of the more popular rides were the Water Chute and the Flip-Flop Railway, which was actually looped. Uh, the Flip-Flop Railway was closed after being considered too dangerous, and Sea Lion Park was unable to keep up with the competition, and they closed after a very wet 1902 season. Luna Park would take over the space and open in 1903, but more about that later. So Steeplechase was opened in 1897 by George C. Tilliou and was Coney Island's longest-lasting amusement park finally closing in 1964. It's also one of the three iconic amusement parks of Coney Island. Now, Tilliou's family opened the Surf House Restaurant in 1865 when Tilliou was three. He married in 1893 and took his wife to the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, which is the one that Disney's father worked at, and was amazed by George Ferris's wheel. He tried to buy it, but it was already sold. He returned to Coney Island with the intention of building his own amusement park. Steeplechase Park actually derived its name from the signature attraction, a mechanical horse racing ride that was constructed constructed for $41,000, which is more than a million dollars by today's standards. And Steeplechase also included a very large saltwater pool, uh, the largest ballroom in New York, a scenic railway, and a boating ride. And in 1901, uh, he visited the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo and experienced a trip to the moon, a revolutionary dark ride that kind of changed the uh, the amusement industry. Steeplechase Park actually burned down almost completely in 1907, but that didn't stop Tilliou. Yeah, so the next morning, Tilliou posted a sign reading, To inquiring friends, I have troubles today that I had not yesterday. I had troubles yesterday which I have not today. On this site will be built a bigger, better steeplechase park. Admission to the burning ruins, 10 cents. And at the time, 25 of the rides were still in operation until you promised to rebuild, and he did. 
So Steeplechase was rebuilt and suffered less destructive fires again in 1936 and in 1939. So I, I don't know guys, it sounds a little suspicious to me. <laughs> <laughs> but as mentioned earlier, Steeplechase Park was run by the Tillyou family until it was sold in 1964 to Fed, uh, Fred Trump, uh, Donald Trump's father. Now, many things contributed to the slow demise of Steeplechase, including the closing of Luna Park in 1944, and our friend Robert Moses' frequent attempts to rezone and change Coney Island, and the flight to suburbia. So, Luna Park opened in 1903 by Frederick Thompson and Elmer Dundee, the two men who created the trip to the moon ride at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. Till you, the owner of Steeplechase Park, had brought the trip to the moon to Steeplechase and shared the profits with Thompson and Dundee. Now, at the end of the 1902 season, Thompson and Dundee rejected the decreased offer from Till you for the next season in 1903, and they promptly signed a lease for Boynton's Sea Lion Park. Luna Park cost over $700,000 to complete and featured over 2,500,000 electric lights, uh, which was kind of a, a really big novelty for the time period. And some of the attractions included 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, not the same, um, <laughs> Dragon's Gorge, uh, Helter Skelter, Trip to the North Pole, The Tickler, I'd mm. go on that, guys, uh, and the companion ride, The Bridge yes. of Laughs, <laughs> you know, just, just name a few of them. And Thompson and Dundee did charge, uh, did change out all their attractions, and sometimes on a yearly basis in order to compete with the other theme parks. Yeah, and on a somewhat interesting note, many attractions from the 1939 New York World's Fair were moved to Luna Park, and it was actually dubbed the New York World's Fair of 1941. Luna Park did suffer two fires in 1944 and did not open for the 1945 season. Now, the next major amusement park built at Coney Island was Dreamland in 1904 by William H. Reynolds, who was a state center at the time. And he really wanted to compete with Luna Park. I ha Before I go on, it's killing me not making this joke already, but especially okay. with the fire, Luna Park, <laughs> it's just, y'all gonna make me lose my rides up in here, <laughs> up in here. <laughs> All right, sorry. Got it out of the way. It's out of my system, guys. Okay, we good, can, good. We can move on. <clears throat> so Reynolds wanted to create a more elegant park than Luna Park, which was seen kind of as chaotic and noisy. And in a similar move to good old Uncle Walt, Uncle Reynolds used proxy buyers to purchase property so that no one would know his true intentions. And he also used his political power to have increased uh, existing areas uh, demolished in order to expand his, his own lot. So in order to compete with Luna Park, Dreamland had over a million lights and the central tower was larger than the one at Luna. It also claimed to have higher class shows that featured themes based on morality, uh, like the end of the world, and the Orient Theater's Feast of Bathshazar and the Destruction of Babylon. Some of the attractions included a Shoot the Shoots, a Swiss Railway, Phoenician Canals with gondolas, and a Lilliputian village with over 300 dwarfs living there. Uh, there was also a six-story building that would catch on fire every half hour and have about 2,000 parkgoers help put out the fire which seemed to be very odd in an area for which frequent fires could spell destruction. <laughs> That's a little bizarre. It's <laughs> odd. So one of the new rides for the 1911 season was called Hellgate, and it was a fast-paced boat ride that led people through dimly lit caverns. And at about 1.30 a.m. on Monday, May 27th, an electrical problem caused the lights to go out while the park was being worked on. And there was a leak in the roof of the Hellgate, and it needed to be caulked by tar. 
and a worker knocked over a, bu a bucket of pitch. And the resulting explosions from some of the lights caused Hellgate to catch on fire. And most of the buildings at the time were made of wooden loth and staff, which was plaster Paris mixed with hemp fiber. So it was very, very, very flammable. Yeah. And even though there was a more modern pumping station nearby, there just wasn't enough water to extinguish the blaze. Sadly, many of the animals in the zoos and exhibits died, and Dreamland was completely destroyed by the fire, and it would never be rebuilt. Now, the closing of Luna Park in 1964 didn't spe spell the end of the amusement parks at Coney Island. Astroland was open from 1962 to 2008, and Astroland was replaced by a new Dreamland Park in 2009, and then by a new Luna Park in 2010. So, you can, you can still experience some iconic and historic rides today. On Coney Island, the Wonder Wheel opened in 1920 and is a 150-foot-tall Ferris wheel at Dino's Wonder Wheel Amusement Park. It might be Dino's. I'm pretty sure it's Dino's. The uh, Cyclone Roller Coaster, located at the new Luna Park, was built in 1927. It's one of the United States' oldest wooden coasters still in operation and is actually owned by the city of New York. And, and it has a great, probably has a great pension. It probably does, actually. Probably it's does. been there for quite so, some time. <laughs> anyway. The, uh, the parachute jump was also one of the, was the Lifesavers parachute jump uh, at the 1939 New York World's Fair. Um, it's been closed since 1968, but it, it actually still remains as a Coney Island landmark, and it's you know, sometimes referred to as Brooklyn's Eiffel Tower. Um, not nearly <laughs> as nice, obviously, but still. Um, and it remains inactive despite being completely dismantled, cleaned, painted, and restored between 2002 and 2004. So it's a little weird, but... At least it looks nice. <laughs> and you can still enjoy a variety of rides and different amusements at Coney Island. And we'd love to hear more about how you spend your time at Coney Island. Or did you have the opportunity to, you know, visit Astroland or Luna Park? Or did I you guess. set any of those mysterious fires? I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, calling. There might be a statute of limitations. So calling the Communicore Weekly Goat Line is probably okay in telling us. Yeah, totally, guys. So give us a call on the Goat Line at 424-785. 4628, that's 424-785-GOAT. Okay, so sometimes a book comes along that is so monumental that it's really kind of hard to describe it. In 2012, author J.B. Kaufman wrote two books on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that were so inclusive exhaustive and stunning that it's hard to find other works that even compare when talking about that film. Now, Kaufman's latest release, which was published by the Walt Disney Family Foundation Press, is Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic. And uh, Kaufman has authored other books focusing on Disney animation, including the South of the Border films, which we both love that one, the Silly Symphonies, and the Silent films. And, you know, needless to say, I was really, really excited when this book showed up. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of parrot what you were saying, we're both big fans of Kaufman. He's done some great stuff. I mean, his research really does go, like, above and beyond many other things, and it really shows in the final product itself. And I know there's a lot of folks who could be intimidated by the massive tome that is this Pinocchio book, but... I mean, really, it's well worth the time to read, even in pieces, and if it takes you a while, it's totally worth it. It's definitely one of the best making-of books that I've come across, and he really packs a lot into the pages. 
Now you used the word parroting. I thought you would go with like uh, karaokeing. I thought we we're gonna do that one, like for Jose Carioca. I mean, given you know, given the topic of one of his previous books and a favorite movie of mine, that would make sense. But uh, I went with a term that other people will know. But now oh, that you explained point. it, karaokeing. But it's gotta be karaokeing. Just to, like that distinction in there, just to be so you get the karaoke. Yeah, karaoke. Okay. Fair enough. Oh, well, that's another podcast. We'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, costume book is close uh, to 352 pages, and it's there's not a lot of fluff that you can find in the book itself. It just like Jeff mentioned, I'm karaokeing him. <laughs> it is a making of book, and it's very well researched and it's very well written. It, it's really hard to believe that Kaufman hasn't written everything at this point about the iconic and award-winning film. Uh, it does follow a standard presentation that we've seen in similar books about the animated films, but that doesn't mean this book isn't truly groundbreaking. To me, I mean, the book really struck a perfect chord between the images and the text, you know, because sometimes, you know, these types of books are too heavy on one or the other, but I really feel like Coughlin's book is so beautifully laid out, it never really feels overbearing. Um, I mean, it's really up there with the great animation books of all time, but I feel like we're kind of just overly praising it in these <laughs> very vague generalities and not really pointing out why. So why do you like it, George? Well, this is my favorite point. See this one right here? This is one of my favorite parts of the book. Where are you pointing? I can't, I can't see. Just a Jungle Cruise joke, right? Well, but I still nah, can't see. Okay. At least then I can see the point she's, the plant she's pointing at. That's a good point. So, okay. I think my favorite part of the book, I, I really found myself drawn to the history of the subject, like the periods before Disney. Uh, just like they covered on the books on Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. In this case, Kaufman takes us back to the origins of the story to give us the details that, you know, we may not know now because we're so involved with the Disney telling of the story. Um, it even talks about some of the details that we might not know, like uh, how they sort of laid the foundation of how Disney changed the story. So it gives you that background. And, you know, compared to some of the other films, Colodi's, uh, uh, the author, Colodi's uh, Pinocchio was barely 40 years old when Walt decided to tackle it as an animated film. And, you know, seeing how the original tale fits historically is always eye-opening and lends understanding to the choices that Walt and his crew made in the creation of the film. You know, I really enjoy how he looks at the film upon its initial release as well, because mm. um, it seems like audiences really expected another Snow White, and were kind of turned off by this adaptation of the much darker story. Yeah. Um, you know, Snow White briefly goes into a dark area, sure, but Pinocchio like really plunges headfirst into it in a lot of its parts. Um, but his look at, you know, into the warmth and the heart of the story is really compelling. And you realize how much the animators, you know, poured their hearts and souls into the film. You know, and they often worked around the clock on unpaid overtime because most of them believed in what they were doing. Yeah, it's uh, the section about the animation or how the creation of the film was really long and incredibly detailed. Um, it just showed how the creation of the film, how difficult it was to craft a work like Pinocchio. Walt and his animators and production staff, they went through so many different versions of the story, even with different characters before they hit the mark. Um, so you know, Kaufman was able to access the notes from production meetings and share the comments from Walt and other studio employees that actually shaped the film on a daily basis. And at times it really felt like I was a, you know, like a fly on the wall, just waiting for them to tread into the story that we know so well, like, oh yeah, 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 bring that character in now, that sort of thing. 
you know, overall, again, this is a really impressive work, and I can't even imagine how much time and work Hoffman put into this. I mean, because the, the guy turns out a book like this like every two years or so at this point, so he must be like constantly researching all the time, and mm. it's impressive, and it's seriously one of the best making of books I have ever read on any topic, you know, let alone Disney animation, but any topic, hands down. Yeah, and Kaufman, based on his relationship with the Walt Disney Family Museum, he's one of the few researchers to have almost unfettered access to various archives at Disney, and then it's it's well worth it for him to be able to put this across. He, he stands tall with other historians that we've looked at, and, and the work that he presents on Pinocchio is going to be the standard that people are going to look at. You know, besides being incredibly well-researched and well-written, the book is easy to digest, and really, it's, it's very easy to enjoy. So after all this praising everything, you know, we really like the book, obviously. Um, so yes, I guess you did. should buy it. I mean, come yeah. on. Four thumbs and up. There are no strings on us. There are no strings attached to this review. Ah, exactly. Okay. So this week's book was Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic by J.B. Kaufman. You don't know what you know till we know you. You, know, you just don't know. There's one little fact we bet you didn't. One little fact we bet you didn't know. The moniker of Luna Park is the most used name for amusement parks around the world, with over 85 former and current parks using the name Luna Park on every single continent except Antarctica. Now we know you. Here's another minute that you can't get back. It's the 60 Second Review. Okay, for this week's 60 Second Review, we've got two Blu-ray releases by Disney that we're so excited about. Hooray! Been waiting for one of these for a long time. And the other one I didn't even know existed. <laughs> the other one we had in our collection beforehand. Okay, so the first one we're talking about, which is the other one? Yes. It's called The Cat Returns. I'm not going to and- lie, you guys. I opened up the package, <laughs> and Alex saw the cover and the title, and he was like, what is this? I ain't watching that. Where's the cat returning from? <laughs> Why is that cat wearing a suit? He had many questions. <laughs> okay, so The Cat Returns is a Studio Ghibli film, which is one of the reasons we're excited about it. But it's not one of the Miyazaki films. But that's okay. He was an executive producer. Um, but it's one of, oh gosh, now I forgot the other guys, the other producer. Takahato? I'm oh, Takah- I think so. Yeah, so um, they sort of alternate their films. But The Cat Returns is the story of a young girl who doesn't feel like she quite fits in. Her name is Haru, and she saves a cat. Um, You have to see how it's pretty cool. And this changes her life in the strangest of ways where she eventually gets taken to the cat kingdom and she has to get the cat bureau to help her. And she and, might have to get married to the cat. I mean, yeah, it's to me basically. It was like Howard the Duck in anime form. I'm not gonna. That's that's the vibe I got from it. That said, Kristen Bell is also one of the voices. So, hello, yes, ladies. And we are staying 50 feet away from her at all times. Yes, yes, including the Blu-ray. I had to have someone else put it into the Blu-ray player yes, and be careful put it away it. afterward. Um, I will tell you why it's called The Cat Returns. It's sort of based on a manga that was produced. And the character of the cat himself, he's a bear and he's got a very long name, he appears in the film Whisper of the Heart. And so does the, the big giant marshmallow cat. Yes. Maru. I want to say Maru. I don't remember exactly. Muta. Muta. 
Sure. It was Vuta. Um, he appears in the film as well. So they sort of brought some of them back. But what's funny is, you know, the 11, my 11-year-old, he, reached, he didn't want to watch it, but he came about halfway through and loved it. There's a lot of surprising action. There's some great dialogue. It's got Carrie Elwes in it, yep. who was the man in black from The Princess Bride. Yay, Wesley. And, you know, I liked it. It's who a great Carrie Elwes, by the way. What? It's Carrie what? Carrie Elwes. Is it? I always it said is. Elwes, and he's never corrected me. <laughs> I can't even be angry about that. Carry on. <laughs> so it does have a few extras, like there's the making of the cat return, which was actually English subtitled, so it made it kind of hard. Yeah, it was to weird. Follow along, I, and a, a, a behind the microphone, which shows you some of the cast in it. So I mean, yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I wasn't. I don't know what I was expecting from it, but it was better than whatever I was expecting from it. Um, very <laughs> bizarre, very weird, but I mean, really, for a studio. Jubilee film, kind of expected. I enjoyed it. I really did like it. Yeah. Um, you know, the extras could have been a little more. Um, the making of uh, Featurette was just okay, and the behind the microphone, which is like standard to talk to the American cast of mm. that did the dubbing over for the film, um, that was just okay too. But I mean, the film, it looked really good on the Blu-ray. I really liked it, and oh yeah, I, totally weird. I, I loved it. Yeah, I did too. It's one that's glad it's in our collection along with Whisperers of the Heart and a few others. But let's talk about the next one, which I think everybody's been waiting a really long time for this Blu-ray. Oh, yes. I've been waiting since, what, 2002 or 2003? We are talking about the film Spirited Away. Hooray! Yay! Um, that was sort of the first film that Disney brought over and released through its uh, Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment and signed a contract with... Um, Studio Ghibli, and they were the ones that got it because they promised to not change a single thing, to just do um, English voices for it. So Hayao Miyazaki said, sure, we'll go with them. Um, let's see, what can we say about Spirited Away? I mean, <laughs> it's a convoluted plot kind of about a 10-year-old girl and her. they move into a new neighborhood and then yeah. she enters the spirit world and her parents are turned into pigs. You know, the old you know fairy tale that everybody knows about. Mm -hmm. I'm kidding, it nobody knows about this fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. Well, but you said something interesting before we started recording that I think yeah. you should touch on. Okay, well, Saw Spirited Away in 2002 or 2003 on DVD was first released. My oldest son, who's 16, when he was about five, watched it and begged to watch it again. And it's always been a favorite of ours. We love it. But, you know, after we watched it on Blu-ray, even my son was like, that's not as good as I remember it being. And I agreed with him. I love the film. It's still monumental. It's an amazing work. But I think after seeing My Neighbor Totoro and Ponyo and The Wind Rises, which are spectacular films and they're on a different level altogether, I think that sort of made this film see a little not antiquated, but not as exciting or charming as some of the newer releases that we've seen from Studio Ghibli. Yeah. I, you know, it's it, it's it's a great film. It can be very hard for Western audiences to understand Spirited Away. I've had to read a lot about it to understand, you know, what Chihiro, the main character, what she goes through when she enters the spirit world and works at a bathhouse for spirits. And there's still that environmentalism that comes into play that Miyazaki's so good at. And there's a lot of great flying. There's a lot of great animation, a lot of great characters. Still loved it. Still, you know, you guys need to go out and buy this Blu-ray. Yeah, it's, I mean, it looks... It's got to have. Fantastic. Yeah. Um... I mean, yeah, it, it was good. It wasn't as good as the last time I watched it, but it still makes you laugh. It makes you cry. It pulls out your heartstrings. It you know yep. challenges the things you believe. Um, 
But yeah, I, it's still a good film. The, the only thing I was kind of disappointed about was all the standard definition oh, features yeah. that were on the high definition disc. They're all great. I mean, don't get me wrong, the content of them is great. Uh, there's the Art of Spirit Away, which, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about the North American uh, Disney distribution of the film. Yeah. Um, there's another behind the microphone thing where they talked about, you know, the, the dubbing cast. Oh, and then they always have a, a television and special. And Susan Egan's in there. Yes, Susan e- <sighs> Egan is in there. I know how much you love her, George. Oh, yes. Anyway. Boom. Okay. So, but there was that make another television special yes. that was in Japanese and dubbed in English again. So it kind of made it difficult to, you know, pay attention to everything going on and try to read at the same time. Um. But it was still enjoyable. <laughs> Don't yes, get me was. wrong. Yes, it was. It was fantastic to see how as beautiful and amazing as those films are, and that Miyazaki, as compared to you know the modern day Walt Disney, he runs his production studio completely different from how the Disney studios were run, even yeah. as they're run today, basically. And I don't know. It's I feel bad saying that I wasn't as excited about Spirit Away, but I still loved it. It's it was still, still great. great. It's still a wonderful film. But if you give me a choice, I'm probably going to go with Totoro. Hey, fair enough. Probably one of the best films out there. Just fair love enough. Totoro. We've got Totoro kitchen mats now that my wife bought. Look at you, you big Totoro fan, you. Yeah, that's it. Well, I'm a normal sized Totoro fan. I mean, I know I gained some weight. But... Oh, I didn't mean it like that. I... Oh, okay, okay, Sorry. okay. So, all right. So, Cat on. Returns. We both liked it. Yes. Good addition to He'll your be library. Returning again to my Blu-ray player. Yes, and then Spirit Away, of course. Beautiful film. Amazing film. Um, still great. It's it's in the top four, I guess, at this point in time for me for Studio Ghibli films. Um, still need to grab it, though. Culturally, it's very important. Absolutely. So. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. In the newly rethemed Grizzly Peak airfield, there are quite a few five-legged goats to go around. And a few episodes back, we actually told you about a sign that mentors Ranger J. Audubon. Well, this time around, if you head over to the Rambler that's parked right outside Humphrey's service station, you'll see our next five-legged goat. Hidden in the back seat of the car, kind of slightly underneath one of the front seats, is a copy of the Davy Crockett Little Golden Book. And obviously, you know, one of the kids is a fan of the Great Frontiersman. And they also uh, they picked a good you know service station to stop at too, since the back wall of Humphreys, right above the register, you know, are all these coonskin caps, all more than you can imagine, along with a gigantic movie poster of Davy Crockett. So, I love Davy Crockett. Cool. Nice little nod to him, and you know the rambling around during the uh, the 50s and 60s. Yeah, and the tie back to the show at the Raleigh Museum, where I actually saw Davy Crockett's coonskin hat that we used yes. for taping or filming at the time, filming. not taping. Wow. Okay, well, speaking about something just as exciting, it's time to announce our year of a million or so limited time cadets prize winner. Yay! And before we get to the winner, as a reminder, there's still time to join. We've only got a few months left, like five or six at this point in time. I'm really bad at counting. And uh, just have to email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, your address so we can mail the prize and your birthday because we're also sending out birthday cards. Seven months, by the way. Just awesome. Is it seven months left? Yeah, because we, you know, January. Oh, that's right. We go through January. Okay, so this week's prize, which is an awesome Adventures by Disney prize pack from Fairy Godmother Travel, is Don S. from Omaha, Nebraska. Hooray! Yay! So, Don, when you get your prize, take a photo, email it to us at communicorweekly at gmail.com or Post it on our Facebook page. We would love to see it. Definitely. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. 
please leave us a comment if you watch it on YouTube or a rating on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Yes, and email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com for just about any reason. Heck yes. You can also like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And I have been periscoping live from the park a lot lately on the Twitter, Ooh. so follow me. And you can watch me do that or eat macaroni in my home. You know, whatever I feel like doing. Um, anyway, call us on the Communicor Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. We do have some good voicemails that we've gotten recently, and we will do a mailbag show very soon. Yay. And make sure you visit the Communa store, either on our website at communicorweekly.com or go straight to communicorweekly.spreadshirt.com. And of course, if you want your official cadet membership card and some stickers, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. We have sent a bunch of Communicore cards out. Yes, we have. Cadet cards. Yes, we have. Okay. And you can also support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash Weekly. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. <laughs>